The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hackey Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. Today we have coming to us all the way from California, where she's at Stanford University of all places doing amazing autism research. Karen Parker, welcome. How are you, Dr. Parker? Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Why don't you give a proper introduction to you? Because in reading about you, you have a million different awards. You're doing a million different things. You're all over the place. You got a bunch of kids and dogs at home. I don't know how you're doing everything. <laughs> I think I'm going to hire you to be my PR person, Haggy. <laughs> um, all right. Well, so I run what I think of as a translational social neuroscience research program, which basically means we're interested in the biology of social functioning. And we do this in different species and we translate those fundamental insights we learn about the biology of social behavior to inform us about the development of new um, biologically based diagnostic um, tools and then also new medications to improve social abilities in various um, patient populations with a specific focus on autism. How did you get into that? That's a good question. So. In graduate school, I was really interested in social behavior. And my PhD advisor studied these little um, rodents called voles that look like mice. And right around that time, there was all this work being done on these two hormones, oxytocin and vasopressin, which um, we know were critically involved in social behavior. And so I joined her lab to be able to study these molecules in this little mouse-like species. So you're basically, you chose to go at the intersection of science and biology and socialization. And, you know, I actually thought about going to medical school. So that was like in grad, you know, like in undergrad, I was having this, you know, sort of crisis. Do I go to medical school? Do I do a PhD? And what's sort of interesting is I picked the PhD route, but here I am now in a medical school working with patients. So I, you know, I sort of came full circle. You know, it's amazing to me as I learn more in this brain milieu um, that more and more with our overall health, I'm finding the most underrated thing is socialization. And you were smart enough to perceive that because people think that's just an extra added attraction, but it is absolutely essential as all the studies show. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you think about humans, we're an intensely social species. And, you know, we experience social interactions as rewarding from infancy. And because those interactions are rewarding, we learn these critical life skills that are responsible for our very survival and well-being. And so, you know, because we're so social, it's really interesting when we start thinking about you know, depression or anxiety or even addiction, a lot of our, what we think of as, you know, uh, mental illnesses often result from like the loss of a loved one, for instance. And so for me, it's, you know, it's a really interesting ability to think about how humans evolved, how other mammals evolved. And, you know, that's with against the fabric of social behavior. You know, I saw a TED talk once 
about the study they did, a 75-year longitudinal study at Harvard on factors affecting the health and longevity and happiness of families and people they followed for 75 years, which was amazing. Yeah. And they were sure it was going to show that the main thing was genetics or cancer, heart disease, you know, something very scientific and biological. They found out beyond a shadow of a doubt what blew everything out of the water was strong social relationships. If you had strong social relationships, you had less cancer, less heart disease, less diabetes, less Alzheimer's, less dementia, you live 20 years longer and happier. And it's, I don't know why it's so understated in our society. I agree with you. I think we're, we're trying to work hard to change that. How much do you feel of socialization as nature versus nurture? I mean, it's a good question. I mean, the way I think about um, that is it's, it's always both, right? Because what we have is you have your own, you know, genetic background and the environment is always acting on that, right? And the environment includes being in your mother's womb, you know, so all of the, it's the placental biology, it's the hormones that are released during gestation up to, you know, what are your parents like? What's your social interactions like? Who are your siblings, right? Are you born as the firstborn or are you the middleborn or the lastborn child? And so where do you grow up? You know, are you in an urban or rural setting? I think, you know, all of those things interact. And so it's really hard to disentangle them. I know that in our autism world, um, social challenges are uh, right up there on the list. I mean, it's tough to get out of your comfort zone and uh, make social connections. Yeah. I think that was why I was so attracted to autism, because, you know, my, my hope was that by understanding the biology of social behavior, we might be able to help individuals who felt, you know, that they had social challenges. So what have been some of the big biological links to social behavior that you're unearthed, you've unearthed and you're aware of now? Yeah. Um, well, what was interesting is back several decades ago, there were these two hormones, vasopressin and oxytocin. And oxytocin is implicated in maternal care, lactation, uterine contractions, and vasopressin was actually more implicated in pair bond formation um, on males and their paternal care. And autism, as you know, is a male biased um, disorder, you know, where you might even have four males to every one females that are diagnosed. And so I got really interested in asking, how could this biology influence our understanding of autism? And so we've been, and I guess the other thing to say is most people, if they're thinking about the biology, have been looking in blood samples. And one thing that we started doing, because autism um, you know, it involves your social cognition, which is obviously generated by your brain. We were interested in looking in a fluid that was closer to the brain. So we've been studying something called cerebral spinal fluid. And what we were able to show is in some of the animals we study and some of the children we had been studying that they have much lower vasopressin levels in spinal fluid, but not in blood. You don't see any differences in blood. And that the lower your spinal fluid levels of vasopressin, the greater your social challenges are. Wow, I was completely ignorant of that. And uh, um, cerebrospinal fluid is uh, yielding a lot of secrets lately, isn't it? 
It is. And I think part of the reason we started doing the work we were doing was we saw that you could, um, you know, in neurology, there's been tremendous progress in looking in spinal fluid for like multiple sclerosis or various forms of dementia. And so we were able, when people were going and taking spinal fluid anyway, for a clinical reason, we were able as what I call piggybacking onto the clinical indication. And I was, Stanford's a pretty small place. You get to know everybody. And so I was able to get all of my friends on different medical services to help recruit patients that again, were already going undergoing a lumbar puncture for some other reason. Um, And so it felt like, you know, there were, there were lots of people involved. And so, you know, finding what we found was, you know, you know, scientifically really exciting, but it was also a real big payoff because we had so many people involved in the effort to get us the samples. Now, oxytocin, uh, my limited understanding of oxytocin is you make a lot of it when you give somebody a hug and that mothers, when they give birth, it's off the charts. Right. But it doesn't seem to be the kind of thing you can get over the internet. Well, there's some interesting studies where they've, you know, shown trying to give social support by text message or if you're able to hear somebody's voice or give them a hug and more of these pro-social hormones are released, you know, when you hear somebody's voice or when you give somebody a hug, probably not surprisingly than when you see it on a text. And so I think that also has a lot of interesting ramifications for you know, loneliness, if so much of our communication is by text message and emails, um, that you sort of wonder if we're moving further and further away from, you know, this really close interpersonal bonds that you, you know, were mentioning with that Harvard longevity study. What are the, some of the benefits, would you say, if we can, if we could get such things when we, on genetic testing, versus um, other types of testing versus the way they're diagnosed now. This gets us into a very, very controversial uh, area. But I was wondering what your thoughts might be. Um, Well, I mean, I think the thing that I would first say is that, um, you know, currently we diagnose autism behaviorally. And because behavior is a snapshot in time, right? If you bring a child in and they're having a really challenging day, what does that test look like, right? Versus if they're not, different clinicians perceive behavior differently. And there's very long clinic wait times currently to get into these specialty behavioral clinics. Um, a lot of the rest of medicine, we, you know, if we think that there is, um, you know, you're experiencing a health um, condition, we diagnose you based on the biology, right? And we currently do, we don't do that for almost any um, brain disorder, except for maybe epilepsy, right? And there's other neurological conditions that we can now diagnose biologically. So I I think moving toward a biological diagnosis would be useful for a few different reasons. One would be that you might have higher yield of the number of patients you could serve and might be more objective. I think for a very long time, people have suspected that there are subtypes of autism, right? There's that saying, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. And so currently we think of this as a spectrum and, you know, it very likely is a spectrum, but, you know, 
somebody who has an IQ of 50 who headbangs and hand flaps and has epilepsy and sensory challenges to me seems like a very different kid than somebody who doesn't have any intellectual disability, is capable of working a job, um, doesn't have epilepsy, maybe has a lot of areas of strength, like they're extremely gifted mathematically or musically, and maybe they have some social challenges, right? And so I think that if we could come up with a way of biologically contextualizing these differences, it would lead to, I think, a deeper understanding of maybe what autism is. And what are some of the comorbidities you're seeing? So, I mean, about, you know, 30% of kids have seizure disorders. You know, and, and again, these estimates vary by the study, but upwards of 80, 90% of kids have comorbid anxiety disorders. There's um, kids who have sensory disorders. There's also genetic conditions that are associated with autism in some people, but not in others. And, and so I think that really complicates the picture tremendously um, because it's what we call such a heterogeneous condition. We here at differentbrains.org, we feel that we would hope for a world to get rid of a lot of the stigma associated with all these different labels and also to help each individual maximize their potential for happiness, health, productivity, and everything somebody would want. As you know, it can get very controversial, especially in today's atmosphere, when you talk about um, uh, improving someone's potential versus getting into the, uh, quote, trying to cure, yeah. say, autism. And um, I, I know that you are of the opinion that you want to help maximize everyone's maximum potential and, and help them in any way you can. But absolutely. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Let me hear you. No, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, and, and I think that, you know, sometimes I'll get contacted by people saying, I don't want you to cure me. And, and I always say, I'm not trying to, you know, it's a lot of people can say that, you know, I mean, I've met a lot of children who can articulate I, you know, I'm suffering. I really wish I could have friends. Um, and so for us, it's really about thinking about, I, I love the way that you frame that about improving somebody's potential and every person, no matter who they are, you know, deserves to have a life that's filled with, you know, that they can fulfill their potential. And that's different for everybody. And I, I, I strongly agree with your statement about that. And I think, you know, the neurodiversity movement is doing very, very good things in recognizing um, precisely what you're, you just stated. What would you say is the biggest roadblock to your work? Okay, I will be completely honest with you. The biggest, road the biggest roadblock is how broken the funding model is in academic medicine. The number one broken thing. So, you know, the way science happens in academic medical schools, as you probably well know, is that scientists, you know, you basically pay your salary, you pay the salary of everybody in your lab, and then you write a grant that's very long and takes weeks and weeks of your time, and then you get it reviewed, and then you have to re, you know, you have to resubmit it, 
And then you get the money two years later with a 20% cut. So you have to do 100% of the work on 80% of the budget. And what I find so, and it's also been incredibly de-risked. So the federal government, with a few exceptions, doesn't want to be funding extremely innovative work. And so when we submit federal grants, they have to be massively de-risked and we're not given the money to take a moonshot. You know, nobody gives us the rocket fuel to take the moonshot for the science that's the most impactful. And I think that's the number one challenge. Most of the best scientists in the world that I know spend well over half of their time trying to raise money for the research that they wanna do. And that's why we do not have more progress, sadly, in almost any area of brain health. And sadly, it also means a corollary to that that you touched on is if I'm going to apply for a grant, first of all, I have to give it a label. And second of all, I got to make it in something where some of the groundwork's already been done right. so that you take a, something like uh, Alzheimer's. I've been barking up the wrong tree for 100 years with this. I mean, it's just we're not getting anywhere with it. And it's going to take a fresh approach. I know my friend Ken Dykewald out at AgeWave, he's the CEO of AgeWave, is really pushing for a whole new approach to Alzheimer's and dementia. And the same thing in autism. If we keep, yeah. you know, just plowing the same thing and then that would happen. Not good. The biggest discoveries that my lab has made has been with philanthropy. It's been people coming in and saying, I believe in what you're doing. I'm going to give you unrestricted funds to follow what you need to do. And I know it's high risk, but it's high reward. And one of my funding agencies, there's a guy named Jim Simons who started Renaissance Technologies. He's a big hedge fund guy. And he really believed in funding the team. I mean, this is what industry does. We fund the team and the idea. You don't have to have done the work to get the funding after the fact. And, and so I think he's really revolutionized in many ways, aspects of the autism field. And so, you know, he, you put the team together, you write the grant, you get the money within, you know, maybe four to six months and rather than two years. And, you know, I think about any disease I care about having to wait two years for the scientists to get the money to start the study, you know, versus if you could get the money tomorrow, in two years, you'd be halfway to making really important progress. So I think that's probably the number one reason that we, at least as, for me as a, as a biomedical researcher, it's, it's the, the biggest challenge I face on a daily basis. And in addition to that, as someone who just looks in from the outside, like I was speaking out at the Aspen Institute and I was saying, you know, I'm the least qualified guy up here, but let me say, you heard from the University of Pittsburgh about how this diet, this very good diet, rewired the brains of these people with autism. And I said, yeah. you're gonna hear later from another university, the same diet, they got a grant to show it does good in someone who's progressive toward dementia, okay? so. Guess what? It's good for all of our brains. But why do we have to repeat it over here and keep it over there? And we're all fighting for the same pot of money. It's yeah. got to be different. And that's that's just from an outsider. Um, well, 
And I think the other tricky part is, is that the, the way that science is rewarded and how we get promoted, you know, so we get, you know, there's the recognition of how much money did you raise? And are you the first or the last author on the scientific publication? And, you know, if you've spent all this time to get this hard earned grant money and you've spent 60% of your time, let's say doing it, maybe 70%. Do you want to hand the, the information over to one of your competitors, right? Do you want to share your data if you spent 10 years collecting this valuable patient population and somebody across the, you know, the country comes up with a good idea and it would take them a fraction of the time to ask it in your patients. But so the incentives are absolutely not set up for idea sharing um, or, or resource sharing or anything else. And I think that the way the funding model could help change those dynamics or how universities reward people for tenure, you know, could be, did you work productively on a team? Did you share your resources? Did you get the most out of the resources you had? Um, and I think until the incentive structure for tenure changes to match the, the, the data sharing and things that you're talking about, we're, we're always going to have that mismatch. And I think that that diminishes our ability to progress as a field as well. I agree with you. Something has to change because the status quo is not our friend. No, I agree. I agree, agree wholeheartedly with you. I'll be thinking about you the next time I write a grant. <laughs> <laughs> um, are there any topics we have not covered that you would like to talk about? Well, I guess the one that was really exciting, probably the most exciting thing that came out of our group this year was, you know, I told you we did that work on vasopressin being low in spinal fluid. And we just published a um, treatment trial um, this past year showing that we could give vasopressin, and this was in children, um, to increase their social abilities. Um, and it was a gold standard, what we call, you know, double blind randomized placebo controlled trial. And what was exciting to me about that work was that we were able to show that people unaware of if a child was on the drug or not. Um, so both the parents, the clinicians, and then the children themselves, um, you know, play, they basically had some computer-based tasks about social abilities. And on all of those different outcome measures, we saw an improvement when we gave intranasally administered vasopressin um, to these kids. And so that was really exciting for me because we could see an alteration in the biology and in a very simplistic way of thinking about it, we're replacing it. And then we see this increase in social abilities. And so, you know, to your point about increasing potential, that that might just be an adjuvant to the other things that we do for people with autism, if that that's something that they feel that they would like as a, you know, as a way to increase potential. Wow, that is tremendously exciting. Yeah. That's really, that's really at the intersection of socialization and biology. Wow. Yeah. And we had people, I could send you, there's a, they, there was a Stanford Medicine Magazine long form article on the work that we did. It's, um, um, and that's available, you know, readily on the internet. I think it's even on my lab webpage. 
Um, and what was interesting is one of the, the dads was interviewed who had a, a child in our treatment trial. And he said, my kid went up for the first time ever and started talking to somebody at the grocery store. And, you know, he said he was just gobsmacked by it. You know, we'd never seen it before. And so I thought that was really interesting because you think of the trillions of social events that somebody has in a week, right? The micro you know, the eye contact you have with a stranger in the, you know, the smile, all of those things, if you thought about them, add up to trillions and trillions of social events over even just the first, you know, couple years of, of development. And, and you think that if you, there's a medication that might help kids become slightly more socially motivated, that, you know, what we think of as a something that just happens implicitly for most of us, it could be a real game changer in terms of, like you said, enhancing their socialization. Well, Karen, that is all amazing stuff. Thank and you. You've really, really educated us. How can our audience learn more about you? I have a lab website. Uh, and that's probably the best way to learn. And it also has interviews. It has videos of me giving talks. And all of our research publications are on the lab website. Dr. Karen Parker of Stanford University, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on this episode of Exploring Different Brains. It's a pleasure to be here. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains, Inc. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.org.